Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hello and welcome back for episode two of our podcast, Women's Reproductive Health Issues in the Face of Changing Legislation. I'm Leanna McGuire, your host for this learning experience with Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. And back with me is Erica Springer. Thank you for taking the time to continue this discussion, Erica. A quick recap of what we have discussed so far. In episode one, we focused on talking about the July 2022 SCOTUS decision regarding abortion and possible impacts on people and practice experiences. For the second episode, we'll examine and review some helpful terminology and statistics. We will also address some clarifying information around reproductive health. Okay, let's define abortion as there are different terms depending on what's being discussed. And the different terms have different meanings and influences on care decisions. Unfortunately, when the term is not defined, conversations with misinformation can happen, right? Sometimes the lay public can misunderstand what is being discussed, especially when terms aren't defined. Can you please review with us some of the important terms like spontaneous abortion, miscarriage, missed abortion, induced abortion, elective abortion? Those are some, just to name a few. Leanna, this is so important. The word abortion is medical terminology, and it differs from how it's described in the legislature. It's not surprising that people often use the terms miscarriage or spontaneous loss instead of abortion to avoid that association with elective termination of pregnancy. In the medical community, abortion is a pregnancy that ends prior to viability. That's it. This can happen naturally, or it can be induced through medication or a procedure. The difference in definition is not new. Let's look at the Texas Abortion Facility Reporting and Licensing Act from 1989. So this has been around for a while. In the legislature, they describe abortion as it means the act of using or prescribing an instrument, a drug, a medicine, or any substance device or means with the intent to cause the death of an unborn child of a woman known to be pregnant. The term does not include birth control devices or oral contraceptives. An act is not an abortion if the act was done with the intent to A, save the life or preserve the life of an unborn child, remove a dead unborn child whose death was caused by a spontaneous abortion, or remove an ectopic pregnancy. Spontaneous abortion is the unprompted passage of a pregnancy. So the patient usually presents with bleeding, they have cramping and passing of tissue. About 80% of these occur before 12 weeks gestation. So early in that first trimester, with the majority really being caused by chromosomal abnormalities. This is a common occurrence. So missed abortion is an intrauterine pregnancy that will not result in a live birth. The embryo or fetus stops growing and does not have cardiac activity at a size or gestation where it should be developmentally. Early embryonic development is really predictable. It's very consistent in relation to gestational age. So easy to identify when that happens. Miscarriage tends to be used more as a lay term, and it usually describes a spontaneous abortion or a missed abortion. Therapeutic abortion is when a pregnancy is terminated because of a medical indication. So something either with the fetus or the carrier Some expand this to include terminations of pregnancies that are the result of rape or incest. 
induced abortion in Williams obstetrics, they describe it as the surgical or medical termination of a live fetus that has not reached viability. Elective abortion, sometimes also referred to as voluntary abortion, is a termination of a pregnancy prior to viability at the request of the patient, but not because of a medical complication. When we talk about illegal abortion, an illegal abortion would be a medical or procedural intervention, so medical or surgical abortion, that ends a pregnancy with the potential for live birth, so a living fetus or embryo, where the person performing the procedure, the place, or the timing of the intervention doesn't meet the law or regulations for that place. An unsafe abortion, well, most abortions, medical or surgical, are considered quite safe. All medical procedures come with an accompanying risk, and nearly all sources report medical and procedural abortions to have less risk than childbirth. So an unsafe abortion occurs when the provider is either not qualified to provide abortion services or the actual procedure, the instruments, the medications, the environment, something that's happening there is increasing the patient's risk of harm and makes the procedure or intervention unsafe. Gotcha. Thank you for delineating all of that. Do you think there are any additional terms that would be helpful to discuss at this point in the podcast? I think we should talk about legal induced abortion and early medication abortions. Okay. I actually have this information from the CDC saying a legal induced abortion is defined as an intervention performed by a licensed clinician, for example, a physician, nurse midwife, nurse practitioner, physician assistant within the limits of state regulations that is intended to terminate a suspected or known ongoing intrauterine pregnancy and that does not result in a live birth. And the other term was early medical abortion. Okay, the CDC says early medical abortion is defined as the administration of medications to induce an abortion at less than nine completed weeks gestation, consistent with the current Food and Drug Administration labeling for mifeprestone. Those definitions are going to be very important when we talk about some statistics here shortly. It's also important to note that in October of 2020, ACOG expanded the use of medication abortion with mifepristone to 70 days past the last menstrual period. Some studies are even supporting evidence used up to 77 days past the last menses. Okay. Now that we've defined or reviewed some terms, let's talk about some statistics, as you mentioned. What are some of the stats related to elective or induced abortions? There are world-level statistics, and there are statistics that are related to the United States. Okay, let's start with global. From information published in November of 2021, the World Health Organization provides some data. Who, right? The World Health Organization. About 60% of unintended pregnancies and about 30% of all pregnancies worldwide are terminated via abortion. Approximately 45% of those abortions are considered to be unsafe. About 97 out of 100 occur in developing countries. So unsafe abortions are a significant source of maternal morbidity and mortality globally. Approximately 73 million abortions are induced annually across the globe. Okay. Well, that gives us some kind of perspective on the global scale. Now, what about stats based in the United States? Well, some background information here can be helpful. So the CDC began collecting information about legally induced abortions in 1969, so pre-Roe v. Wade. 
The following information regards this kind of data. Remember, it's harder to track illegal and unreported abortions. And consider that states do not have to report data to the CDC. They report based on their own choice, so numbers could be a little higher than what's discussed here. The Guttmacher Institute also performs extensive reproductive research, and they may actually offer additional sources of family planning-related data and abortion statistics. So here are some of the statistics from the CDC. So in 2019, there were 629,898 reported legal-induced abortions in the United States. There were at least 195 abortions for every 1,000 live births. What are some of the descriptors pertaining to women obtaining legally induced abortions? Over 55% of legal induced abortions were for women from ages 20 to 29. And the breakdown of timing from gestational age is as follows. Nearly 92% are equal to or less than 13 weeks. So in the first trimester early in pregnancy, mm-hmm. nearly 6% between 14 and 20 weeks, less than 1% greater than 21 weeks or more. Approximately 42% of abortions are classified as early medical abortions. From 2018 to 2019, there was a 10% increase in early medical abortions. From 2010 to 2019, there was a 123% increase in early medical abortions. Whoa, 123% increase over a decade seems like a really significant number. I mean, if there'd been a 10% increase each year, that seems 123% is still a growing increase percentage. Do you have any idea or explanation as to why there was a notable increase for the past decade for early medical abortion? I do. So we did see a significant increase in medication abortions in the U.S. from 2010 to 2019. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about why that probably is. Despite an increased number of medication abortions and abortions less than nine weeks gestation increasing, the total number of abortions in the United States from 2010 to 2019 actually decreased. So overall, the numbers went down. Technology is one factor. We have better accuracy and availability of over-the-counter pregnancy tests, so it's improved and led to earlier detection of unintended pregnancies. Ultrasound technology is also improved, and that helps us to better confirm pregnancies at an earlier gestational age. The greatest factor is likely that medication abortion has become more accessible in the U.S. One of the most effective medications used for medication abortions, mifepristone, was FDA-approved in the year 2000. In 2013 and 14, clinical practice guidelines were published, and it expanded the use of this medication, mifepristone and misoprostol, for pregnancy abortion up to 70 days of pregnancy. And then in 2016, this drug label was expanded to match. How does U.S. legislation surrounding abortion compare to other countries? This is a great question. We can learn a lot from global data and perspectives, especially with a complex topic such as abortion. I can give some examples of statistics on that. Since 2000, 38 countries have changed their abortion laws, with all but one trending toward liberation. In 2018, Ireland, previously having some of the strictest abortion laws, increased abortion access to allow termination up to 12 weeks or where maternal health is at risk. Since 2020 alone, abortion has been decriminalized in Mexico and South Korea and New Zealand lessened abortion restriction and Argentina and Thailand legalized abortions with gestational limits. The U.S. joined Honduras in increasing abortion restriction. 
When we look at Honduras, where abortion has been banned since 1985, and an abortion ban was added to their constitution in 2021, the effect we see there, per the UN, is a significant number of unsafe abortions. Now, Poland boasts some of the strictest abortion regulations in Europe, allowing only for medical reasons, with providers facing up to three years in prison for performing illegal abortions. Can't imagine. The Council for Foreign Relations indicates an overall decrease in abortions in nations where abortion is legal and an increase in abortions, especially unsafe abortions, where tight restrictions exist. In addition to global perspectives, I'd imagine history plays an important role as well. What can you share with us regarding early history of abortion in the United States? In early America, the legal system used British common law to determine legality of abortion. This was long before pregnancy tests and ultrasounds that we talked about with technology. So they really relied on the perception of fetal movement or quickening to identify the cause of what was often referred to as obstructed menses. Prior to quickening, it was considered a potential life, and any remedies used to cure their obstructed menses was legal. Post-quickening abortions were a misdemeanor, required a woman to admit she had felt movement and most likely were protective, as you can imagine the high rate of complications of women terminating pregnancy between after four to six months in early America. It could have been very safe. So medical care at this time was not only provided by physicians, but a variety of healers. It may have actually been physicians either believing their medical care was superior to the healers or to corner the market that supported lawmakers to create anti-abortion laws. When you combine this with an increase of knowledge of embryonic development, by 1900, every state in the U.S. had a law prohibiting abortion, with some offering exceptions when provided by physicians for medical reasons. In the 1960s, we saw this increase in major birth defects from thalidomide, a widely used sleeping pill, as well as German measles. This combined with women correlating reproductive choices with citizenship was used as a platform to support abortion. At that same time, primary religious-based groups advocated for the unborn. Though not all states were on board, we saw states like Colorado, California, and New York pass legislation in support of abortion access. Then, in 1973, Roe v. Wade created some consistency across the entire country, which we talked about in the previous episode. However, by 1976, the topic of abortion started to become politicized as an anti-abortion stance was starting to align with the Republican platform. It's so interesting to explore the history and see the similarities and differences between now and earlier times in the U.S., similarities between states, political parties, religious affiliations, yet some of the biggest proponents of reproductive freedoms come from major medical associations, the organization of which may have started the whole movement. Wow. Interesting information for sure. Now let's transition to talking about some more clarifying information to address emergency care, which we'll discuss more in episode three. Can you clarify how emergency care is still offered to pregnant women? The United States Department of Health and Human Services on July 11th of 2022 issued guidance that women who are pregnant and those experiencing loss of pregnancy have access to emergency care. And providers are protected under EMTALA for administering legal life-saving care. Yes. Well, EMTALA is the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Can you please tell us more about that? 
Sure, it's really important to understand this so we understand the protections of providers. And so MTALA was created in response to an executive order by the president to help assure pregnant patients facing severe complications do not have necessary healthcare measures, including abortion, withheld because of state laws. A letter from the Department of Health and Human Services to providers very clearly states that the federal MTALA statute supersedes any state or any of their local restrictions. They cite examples of emergency that include, but they're not limited to things like ectopic pregnancy, complications of pregnancy loss, or emergent hypertensive disorders, such as preeclampsia with severe features. And that treatments may include surgical removal of one or both tubes, administering methotrexate, a medication that causes harm to the pregnancy, antihypertensive therapy, and or abortion. Enforcement of Entala is only by complaint in the United States. Okay, interesting. I've heard some discussion from nurses who are concerned that some women may travel out of state to try and obtain abortion measures from states where it's offered. Their concerns include women hemorrhaging or having other serious effects while traveling after some kind of intervention instead of staying under medical supervision. Have you heard any discussions like this? Yeah, so patients will travel to great distances for medical or procedural abortion services to a place where it's legal and accessible. While the risk of complications after abortion are very low, they do happen. So in an effort to save money or minimize the impact of their lives, they may turn around and head back right back to their home right after a procedure, after taking a medication. They could be traveling through a state that doesn't permit abortions. And these patients might hesitate to seek care for their complications, kind of similar to patients who might hesitate to seek care if they've utilized a self-managed abortion. It seems more discussions about birth control and pregnancy prevention efficacy may occur in light of changing legislation. As a women's health nurse practitioner, can you educate our podcast audience and give them information that they can share on general pregnancy prevention? Of course. So contraception has long been our primary prevention to unintended pregnancy. With so many methods available today, there's really no shortage of options when it comes to contraception. My goal when I counsel my patients on contraception is to come to an agreement with my patient on the most effective method that they're most likely to use consistently and as directed. I confirm that this method aligns with their short and long-term goals for family planning and make sure they don't have any medical contraindications for the method And I usually use the U.S. medical eligibility criteria for contraceptive use to determine that. I offer the patient a visual chart with all the methods. We talk about the most effective to the least effective. And then we rule out methods until we use shared decision making. And we choose the best method for them at this time in their lives. It's really important that we listen to our patients. We can counsel them on why we think a method might be best. But ultimately, unless medically contraindicated, the patients are going to be best motivated to be consistent with the method they choose. So we really need to honor that. In addition to efficacy, we talk about risks and side effects of a method. I often include a next best methods in the event that they decide the first choice doesn't work out. This helps prevent the, I didn't like birth control pills, so I stopped it on my own and oops, now I'm pregnant. I also recommend barrier methods such as condoms in addition to any other method. No method is perfect, and so by adding two, it helps not only helps to reduce transmission of sexually transmitted infections, it offers an additional layer of prevention against pregnancy. 
the only because the only truly 100% effective method against unintended pregnancy is abstinence. So if a patient chooses to use natural family planning or barrier method that requires a has a larger margin for human error, we discuss where and how to obtain emergency contraception and even consider giving a prescription as sometimes it can be less expensive with a prescription for patients who have a prescription plan, even though emergency contraception is available in most places over the counter, though there may be some regulations on age and access. Patients do not need a pap smear or even a gynecologic exam for most birth control methods. So there is no reason for us to withhold birth control. We need to look at our healthcare systems for evaluation for insertion of long-acting reversible contraceptives like intrauterine systems or contraceptive rods. If a provider can be reasonably sure a patient's not pregnant, the device can be inserted outside of the menstrual period, including insertion of same-day IUDs, also known as IUSs or intrauterine systems. Okay. And at the heart of this topic, which interventions or birth control options fail the most and which have the highest effectiveness? So when we compare efficacy of contraceptive methods, we typically look at the number of pregnancies that occur during the first 12 months of use. So obviously, sterilization procedures and long-acting reversible contraceptives, or LARCs as we call them, have been shown to be the most effective at preventing pregnancy. There's no risk for human error. So many assume the sterilization procedure the most effective when actually the contraceptive rod has been shown to be more effective method followed by vasectomy than IUDs containing progesterone, followed by tubal ligation or female sterilization, then the copper IUD. Actual use and perfect use are pretty similar with these methods because they're either surgical or the provider's inserting them. Next here would be hormonal methods. The injection, because of its three-month dosing by a provider, has a higher actual use efficacy than some of the other hormonal methods, such as pills, patches, and rings, because these methods require the user to participate in the administration on a regular basis. So the efficacy with perfect use of a birth control pill is usually about 0.3 in 100 pregnancies per year. Then we have male condoms. So we usually have about two in 100 pregnancies in 12 months of perfect use, but actual use, we have about 13 out of 100 pregnancies with actual use. So much more accurate information there. However, when, like I said, when we combine a condom with another method, math tells us the risk for pregnancy becomes very, very low. So definitely the way to go. Other methods such as spermicides, we can use them alone or in combination with a diaphragm, contraceptive sponge, internal, or female condom. Fertility awareness ranges from about 2 to 34% of actual use, depending on which methods being employed. So with withdrawal or coitus interruptus, it's about 4% with perfect use, about 20% with actual use. Usually those patients I put on prenatal vitamins. Compare this with no method. So if we had no contraceptive method at all, about 85 in 100 women would get pregnant the first year of having unprotected sex. Thanks for that summary. Some good info there. I like the way you mentioned perfect use versus actual use. What's that old saying? A chain is only as strong as its weakest link? Something like that. <laughs> we know that the U.S. maternal mortality rate isn't good, and there are racial disparities where non-Hispanic Black women have a st statistically significant higher mortality rate. In your expert opinion, do you think changing legislation will have an impact on the maternal mortality rate? 
Yeah, so as a developed nation, our increasing morbidity and mortality in the United States, especially in patients of color, is unacceptable. This during a time where maternal morbidity and mortality in other developed nations has declined significantly. So the Black Mamas Matter Alliance Toolkit identifies several barriers that are necessary to maternal care. They are availability with regards to facilities, providers, and supplies, accessibility, both physical and economic accessibility, as well as information accessibility and non-discrimination. Acceptability with respect to the individuals and communities which they serve from respecting cultural and gender requirements, as well as quality of facilities, goods, and services. We discussed earlier how physical and economic availability of family planning services have really shown to be placed barriers to the care and potential generational poverty too. Yeah, these are really serious issues. Anything else you'd like to add as far as clarifying information about women's reproductive health? The only way we can really improve maternal child health in the U.S. is to work together. From primary care to emergency medicine, regardless of gender or your personal beliefs and views on abortion, I really encourage you to look at the big picture and find one way which you can make a difference in these maternal child health outcomes. We really all have to work as a healthcare team. Well said. What a great way to leave us on that note and wrap up episode two. It's truly important to begin efforts or continue efforts by finding one way, then another, then another, that we can make positive difference in maternal child outcomes. Please continue with us for episode three, the final episode, where we will discuss misinformation around abortion and women's reproductive health. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.